So, good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the LSC. I am Sandra Jovcelovic, Professor of Social Psychology here at the school, and it is my great pleasure to chair our event this evening. Before I introduce our speakers and the format of the event, let me just say a few words about this lecture series and the celebrations we're launching today. Psychology at LSC is 50 this year, and over the next two academic sessions, the Department of Social Psychology will be holding a series of events that celebrate and emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology in the school, where from the 1960s onwards, the project and the vision of a societal psychology took shape. From the very early work, on children and television, which was then a very uh, new technology in the 50s, uh, to studies of perception and racial prejudice, communication, social class, to the most recent work on identities and intercultural relations, uh, culture and cognition, health and community development, public attitudes to science and technology, communication and safety cultures. LSE is proud to be the home of societal psychology and to connect our discipline to public spheres and pressing societal issues. With these celebrations, we aim to draw attention to the importance and the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences and, at the same time, bring together psychologists, political scientists, anthropologists, and other social scientists to reflect on how the disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with the social sciences and address topics that are central to both. So keep an eye on your website where you can find all the details and the relevant information about forthcoming uh, lectures and events. Now, let me introduce our speakers and the format for this evening. Professor Tomazello will lecture. Professor Stucci and Dr. Gillespie will produce brief responses and will then open uh, for questions from the audience. We are delighted to have with us this evening Professor Rita Stucci from the school's Department of Anthropology. Professor Stucci is an expert on the anthropology of Madagascar and her work on how visual children and adults categorize the social worlds combines ethnographic methods and the experimental traditions of psychology. She has been an inspiring interlocutor in the culture and cognition group and we're delighted that she is with us this evening. My colleague, Dr. Alex Gillespie, is an associate professor of social psychology and an expert on the psychology of perspective taking and position exchange. His work illuminates the troubles and the potentials of communication for achieving our collective shared human life. And now, Professor Martin Tomasello, our key speaker tonight. Michael Tomasello directs the Department of Developmental and Comparative Psychology at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, where his lab conducts research on processes of social cognition, social learning, 
cooperation and communication from developmental, comparative, and cultural perspectives. Their studies are mainly with human children and great apes. It is difficult to introduce uh, Michael Tomasello because his writings, awards, and honors are just too many to cite. He's one of the world's leading comparative psychologists whose work on the development of language in human children, the cultural matrix of human cognition, and the origins of cooperation and shared intentionality have greatly enlarged our understanding of the human and what makes us human. His work is recognized as relevant far beyond the discipline of psychology, and it's important for us here in the School of the Social Sciences. When he received the Hegel Prize conferred by the city of Stuttgart, Jürgen Habermas noted that he can be considered a philosopher by temperament, if not by discipline, by the kinds of questions he asks and by the ways in which he frames his answers. He has written more than 300 scientific papers, and yet he does not give up the book form. In our program here at the LSE, we love his books on the cultural origins of human cognition, the origins of communication, and why we cooperate. And we are really looking forward to reading A Natural History of Human Thinking that came out this year with Harvard University Press. Uh, Mike, in addition to your impressive achievements, you are also approachable, open and down to earth, as you demonstrated this afternoon, uh, taking with great uh, grace the grilling and the questions of our doctoral students in our lab. We're thrilled to have you back here at the LSE and to hear you speak on uh, in search of human uniqueness. Please join me in giving Professor Tomasello a very warm welcome. Thank you very much, Sandra. I was here some years ago, and uh, it was sorry. <clears throat> it's a great group of people here uh, for my wide range of interests, and uh, I really enjoy myself. So um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, for the past 20 years or so, uh, my group and I have been in search of uh, those things that most clearly distinguish human beings from their nearest primate relatives. And of course, there are many things, but focusing on, in particular, uh, what many people would consider most important to um, what makes us unique, which is the way that we think about things, our cognition, and the way that our social lives are organized. And indeed, our central theoretical orientation coming from a Vygotskyan perspective, for example, is that human thinking uh, is unique precisely because it is socially conditioned. So um, that's the hypothesis that we will start with. And the method that we use is, as Sandra said, we um, have pioneered the use of the comparative experiment where we put chimpanzees or other great apes, but typically chimpanzees, and human children in very similar situations and look to see uh, what they do and see what's similar and what's different. So let me start with a very broad-based experimental study where we were testing this overall hypothesis about whether humans and apes 
uh, were similar, the degree to which, and the ways in which they were similar and different in their cognitive capacities. And what we did was we gave them uh, a big, a large array of tasks, about 15 different tasks, kind of like an IQ test, if you will, but covering a whole range of different um, skills. And we gave it to 100, over 100 two-year-old children, over 100 chimpanzees, and 32 orangutans. And what you can see from, um, what you can see from these um, graphs here are that in the physical domain, and so these are things like understanding space, like if you hide something and then rotate the table or something like that, um, in uh, quantities, that is, knowing which, how many more in a pile, and causality using a tool, chimpanzees and human children at two and a half years old are basically identical. The chimps are just slightly higher, which I like very much, but anyway, they're more, more, or, less, more or less the same. But now, if you look at the social domain, so these are things about being able to understand somebody's intentions, being able to imitate them, and being able to communicate with them, you see the children are like double the value of the great apes. So we found an age, two years old, where humans still have their same general cognitive capacities for dealing with the physical world that other apes have, but their social capacities are already different, very different. And just for the uh, aficionados in you, we also did a, a factor analysis uh, where we looked at the individual differences in these, um, along, among these different uh, um, tasks and the individuals. And what we find with children, what we find with apes is only two factors bringing them together, uh, a spatial factor and everything else and with the kids, we find also a unique social factor. So it seems that um, based on the analysis of individual differences, we also can see that children have special uh, social abilities. And then a follow-up where it's a whole new sample. There are 48 kids and 44 uh, chimps and sister species bonobos. And what you can see on the far left is the two-year-old children um, in the physical cognition, again, the two-year-old children and the chimps are identical, and the social cognition is higher, but then we followed them longitudinally for several years. And what you see is that the chimps are hardly changing at all across this two-year period from two to four years of age. They're not getting better at the test over time, and the children are getting much, much better. So the conclusion is that, uh, of all of these together, is that um, um, with children, social cognition is leading the way, and, uh, it's, uh, and the physical cognition is coming along behind it. So just to take one example with the quantities, uh, two-year-old children and chimps are being able to judge which one has a larger quantity or whatever, but then children, because they are social, uh, can learn from others. They can learn number words, they learn how to count, they learn how to do all kinds of other things that they wouldn't invent for themselves, but that they're getting from uh, others. And this takes their quantitative skills way beyond what apes do. They wouldn't do that on their own. A child on a desert island, would, I would propose, uh, who, who never had any social contact, would end up with the same quantitative skills as, uh, as apes, or maybe a little different, but not much. It's learning how to count, learning how to use Arabic numerals. That's what takes you beyond grade eight um, uh, um, math, mathematical skills. And so it's not that grade eights don't have any 
of the social cognitive skills that we're singling out as, especially, as special in humans. We've done a number of studies showing that they actually do understand quite a lot about how others work. They understand that others have goals, that others perceive things, and that others' actions are determined by what they want, what their goal is, and what they perceive, that is, the way the world is. But it's mainly when they're competing with others that they do this, that they're able to read the minds of the others. So I can summarize this by showing you one little film clip here. This is one of our best-known studies. And the idea is that you can see that banana. If you put a banana in the middle of the floor, this is a subordinate chimp whose leg you can see. And there's a dominant chimp back here where the camera is. And if you put a banana in the middle of the floor and let, him, let it open, the dominant would always get it. You say, how do I know that? And I say, that's because that's how we define dominance. <laughs> okay, the, the dominants are the ones who always get it. That's the full stop. Okay, but... We tested that ahead of time to determine who the dominant was. And then the trick was, uh, you see the banana on top of the bucket there. That's the one they both can see. So this, the subordinate kind of knows mm, the dominant's going to take that. But behind this other bucket, what you can't see is there's a banana that only the subordinate can see. So the subordinate has some knowledge that the dominant doesn't have. We sometimes call this our knowledge versus power experiment. Okay? So the dominant has the power, but the subordinate has some knowledge that the, power do, that the uh, dominant doesn't have. And you'll see what happens. You're going to watch the subordinate. The door is going to come down quickly because we don't want her to see what the other one is doing. I should mention also that the subordinate's door will go up first. So she can't wait and see where the dominant is going and go the opposite direction. She has to choose first. Okay? So the door will go down quickly and then it'll come back up. And now she's got to choose. She looks over there, but no. <laughs> she gets that one. You see she does it. The dominant takes it and then comes over and checks just to make sure <laughs> that there's not some still left. Okay? So the subordinate knows that the dominant can see that banana but cannot see that banana. So they're monitoring what the other one can see. We have other studies showing that they know what the other one is trying to do, what their goal is. Even if they're not currently doing it, they know what their goal is. So they really do have, to go back to this characterization, they really do have something like an understanding of the goals and perceptions of others as driving their behavior. So they know that the other one sees the banana and wants the banana and is therefore going to go for it. If they can't see the banana, they won't go for it. If it was a rock and not a banana, then um, they would know that the other guy didn't want it. So he wouldn't go for it. So what we have characterized is that the chimps are very good at what we call some individual intentionality. That is, they act intentionally, they act intelligently toward their goals, and they understand others as intentional. They understand the others as acting toward their goals and, um, and perceiving things and attending to things relevant to their goals. But what I'm going to argue to you this evening is that humans did something different with that. Through basic processes of cooperation, we started being able to act together in acts of shared intentionality. That is, we can act collaboratively. We work together toward a shared goal. We both have the same goal, and we're working toward it together. And we can create shared intentions and shared attention as we're doing this. Now, you may take this for granted, and you may say, well, I see lots of animals you know, on TV or whatever, 
you know, the herd of sheep going together or all this. They're not acting with a common goal. They're acting together. They're acting in parallel, but they don't really have uh, a shared goal. And I'm going to spell out what that means to you in some of our experiments. So just hold that thought and I, it'll become clearer as um, we um, demonstrate. The evolutionary story is not 100% uh, necessary for this, but I want to put it in a little bit of a context. And that is, um, I want to argue that humans became more collaborative because ecological conditions changed. <clears throat> and uh, unlike other great apes, at some point humans had to cooperate to get food or else they would die. So um, other animals took their food sources, whatever it might be, uh, and humans are left to, for example, hunt for small mammals or to uh, forage for food that requires multiple people to gather it. And this obligate collaborative foraging has left its mark on modern humans. So when we're testing young children, and you're going to see a bunch of studies with young, comparing young children and chimpanzees, what we can see in the young children is that humans have become adapted, biologically adapted for being cooperative and working together towards shared goal, sharing the spoils of what they gather in fair ways, um, and also then being able to create cultural things like um, social norms and institutions which are not biologically determined in any way. These are free creations of human cultural beings, but they are enabled by humans' cultural skills. So we need to conceptualize this relationship between human evolution and biology and culture, where culture is a product of certain kinds of biological adaptations, but then it has a life of its own, so to speak, uh, as different cultures create different um, social structures. So I'm going to show you a series of experiments here. All of these are going to have the same general um, format of comparing kids and chimps in similar situations. And I'm going to look at their motivation to collaborate, their motivation to share the spoils and to share the spoils equally or fairly and to exclude free riders. It's very important in the evolution of cooperation to keep cooperation stable. All of the theoretical models of, human of, of any kind of cooperation, you can't let people sit around and smoke a cigarette and have a cup of coffee while you're out there working hard and then they come in and they want to get as much of the spoils as the people who put in all the work. Cooperation won't work like that because the free riders are, are getting all the benefits and they're not paying any of the costs. So you have to control free riders. You have to, you have to feel like that person cutting in front of you in the line does not deserve to be there and uh, you're not going to let that happen. Very, very simply. It's about as simple a study as you can get. Um, in the first study I'm showing you here, we had a situation where... Um, uh, this is done with both chimps and kids, and in some of the studies where we're doing comparisons, I show you the chimps and some I show you the kids, but almost all of them are done with both. This is a study where the chimps come in, and notice the subject down at the bottom. He has a choice. He can, on the left side, he can pull a rope, and if his partner on the other side pulls the rope, then they both get one banana. All right, so they can cooperate and get one banana each. Or, alternatively, the subject can pull two ropes on the right-hand side, and it's still exactly the same payoff. They both get one banana. So it's not like he gets more if he does it himself. They're, they're both going to get one in both situations. But do they prefer to collaborate or do they prefer to do it alone? 
What you can see in the graph at the right is that the apes are pretty much indifferent. They're a little bit below 50%, but they basically don't care whether they're doing it alone or whether they're doing it to collaborate. The kids, uh, over three quarters of the time, almost 80% of the time, they prefer to collaborate. So they just prefer to get their food through collaboration rather than getting it equally, even though the payoff is the same for both of them. Now, as always, in experimental psychology, what you love to do is be able to manipulate things. So let's make the chimps look like the kids. Easy way. Double the food on the cooperation side. And, whoops, sorry. Oh, that's supposed to have another graph there. Um, sorry, on the right-hand side, you'll see the chimps looking just like the kids. If you double the food on the cooperation side, they go for the cooperation side. So they just go where there's most food. So they don't care when it's equal food. When they get more food, they're going to do the other. So there it is. Sorry. Uh, they're being driven by, uh, by the food. Okay, now here's the crux of the matter. Once you've collaborated, what do you do with the food at the end? This is the central problem of collaborative foraging. Okay, we work together to get something. Neither one of us could have got it on our own. Uh, so we both are sort of beholden to one another. Now what do we do? And you'll see here what chimps do. What we do. This is an apparatus. We love this board pulling in thing. Uh, so they pull on the rope. If only one of them pulls, it comes out, because it's just put through those hooks there. So if one of them pulls, it comes out. So they have to wait on their partner. And what you're going to see here is, um, uh, it's going to have a soundtrack because it was filmed for a TV thing. But you'll see the individual will come in and wait on the other one. And we have food, one set of food for that individual, and one set of food down here for this individual. Okay? So there are two sets of food here. Here comes the first one. This is a young female. She knows not to pull, but that won't work. And she actually goes and gets her partner. This is really phenomenal. I was amazed when I saw this. And they pull together, and they both get food. Amazing. But now, as is, psychologists love to be perverse in various ways, we're going to put the food in the middle, in one pile. So now, they've got to solve the problem of how to divide the spoils. And you'll see what happens. The one who's you're watching now, this one here, is the dominant. Pull, and she takes it off. <laughs> so you notice the one on this side was not a very enthusiastic puller to start with. <laughs> okay? And now on the next trial, she stops. Okay? So this is, everybody knows this, you use this in your daily life every day, which is that if you cooperate with somebody and then you hog all the stuff at the end, uh, they're not, they're going to quit. They're going to quit because cooperation is about both of us working and both of us benefiting. Now you want to see, okay, and the chimps don't know that. And the reason they don't know that is because they are adapted for dominance. The dominant gets whatever they want and the subordinate takes the rest. That's the way food sharing works in chimps. Now you're going to watch some children. These are three-year-old children. They're German children, but the, uh, the language doesn't really matter. And I actually chose this video to have some similarities to the chimps. You'll see. Three-year-old little boys come in. This is just the situation where the food's in the middle. Um, so this is four gummy bears in the middle. They pull. And the boy on your right will act like the dominant chimp and go for it. The other kid doesn't know what's going on. But he doesn't take all of them. Notice he doesn't take all of them. He leaves them there. Now the other boy notices they're not on his side and comes over. He starts to take a bunch of them. And the other kid says, no. Okay. And now 
he takes two and he takes two. So they each take two and they share them equally and they can keep doing this for a zillion trials in a row. They keep, okay? <laughs> they they got to compare, of course. <laughs> Cooperation is stable. They can keep doing it over and over because they trust one another that we're going to work out an equal division of the spoils. And indeed, it is equal almost every time. Now I'm going to show you what happens when one of them decides to be a little more, um, uh, less cooperative. And these are two little three-year-old girls. And they're going to pull too hard. And the gummy bears are going to go out on the floor. And so the girl on the left seems to think this gives her license to take them all. You'll see. And the other girl protests. No. And she returns it. Right? So they end up with an equal number. The first one tried to get over on the other one and she wouldn't let her. All right, here's what we observed in this study was that um, it is not that I want more. If it was I want more, then I would do that same thing whether you took one or two or three or four. It wouldn't matter. I would want more. They only do this when that first girl takes more than two. When she takes more than her share is the only time they protest. And the other one almost always in the face of protest gives it up because she knows she shouldn't be doing that, okay? So this is what some of the moral philosophers call moral protest or second personal protest. All I have to do is remind you, hey, what are you doing? I don't need to tell you what to do. I don't need to say give me equal amount, nothing, because we both know that's what you should be doing. So I just say, hey... And she goes, okay, okay. All right. and, and now we're at equal. All right? Because I just need to remind you to do what you, need, what you know you need to do. It's not that I need to tell you what to do. So this is not a demand for more. This is a moral protest that you took more than you deserve. You took more than you're supposed to take. Okay? And the chimps, of course, dominance rules the day. Something like this has no leverage, no way to get in. Uh, we went further than this on the basis of that last experiment where we noticed equal divisions almost every time. And we noticed that under protest they equalized. This is my favorite recent study that we've done. What we did was we have four marbles. So the marbles are the reward. They get to actually, you can see down at the bottom here, this little blue dot. This is a machine. They get to throw the marbles in and they make a, a really cool noise. So the kids love these marbles. And there are four marbles in the middle of the board there. And the kids are going to work together to knock these marbles down. And again, perverse psychologists, you'll see what we did to them, the poor kids. Whoops, three to one side and one to the other. <laughs> but the kid with three hands over and equalizes. Okay? All right? And then they get to play their little game there. Okay? This again is absolutely amazing that over 80% of the time, the one who got three equalized. In the behavioral economics literature, this is called an aversion to positive inequity, not being upset like that first girl that I got less than my share, but being in some sense not happy that I got more than my share. I got more than my share, oops, oh, I feel, oh, okay, let's equal it out, all right? Uh, so, um, and here's the important part, we had two control conditions. One control condition, they simply walked in the room and there were three down at the bottom of one and one in the other. And then they don't share. Right? They come in, oh, here are my three, there's your one. Oh, sorry. Okay. Right? But they didn't collaborate to produce it together. 
So if they just sort of find it, I got mine, you got yours. But if we work together, they don't belong to anybody. These are ours because we generated them together. We even had, a, and in that case, they, um, they shared very little. So actually the literature before this study, the literature was with young children. They never give up resources to equalize like that or they seldom do at this age. Uh, but what we did was if, you, if we, get, we got them to collaborate and now they want to equalize. So we think this is a very good um, indirect piece of evidence that somehow equal sharing, notions of fairness are tied up with collaboration. Evolutionarily and ontogenetically. Uh, just another version of the same thing. What we have them doing is pulling together and when we pull to my side... When we pull to my side, I get one and you get nothing. But then we can pull to your side and you get one and I get nothing. So the solution for us is taking turns. We pull to my side, so I benefit. Then we pull to your side and you benefit. And you can see what the kids do here. Interesting, I I think you can see this at the beginning. They start off by saying, uh, my side. And the other kid says, no, my side, my side, my side. And then this kid here says... Uh, the other kid says, my side. And then he says, and then mine, okay? <laughs> so they, have an, they actually have a joint commitment. They have an agreement that they're going to take turns. And the other kid says, okay. So yeah, I just got that part. Then here, okay? The kid says, okay. And they pull to this side. So taking turns is the solution to certain kinds of limited resource problems where we can only access one at a time. And they do this back and forth. And what you can see in the graph on the right is that um, about 60% of the children found this solution sort of right away. And importantly, some of them, it took them a while to discover the taking turn solution. But once they discovered it, there was never a single case of going backwards. Once they got it, this clearly was a stable solution. So even the ones who weren't clever enough to think of it right at the beginning recognized it as a solution right from the beginning. And you can see the right <laughs> graph for the chimps. Uh, none of them. And we actually did two studies with the chimps trying to make it as easy as we could. Uh, this was taking turns within a trial. We had a different one where they could take turns across trials. And what happened was the dominant wants to pull it to his side every time. The subordinate maybe goes along a few trials and then loses interest and it's over. Okay? Um, so, um, uh, yeah. Now, dealing with free riders, um, uh, as I told you, this is a very important part of your motivation to cooperate. Uh, chimps do this kind of group hunting of monkeys in the wild where they kind of surround it, the way that lions and wolves do something similar. But then when they kill this monkey at the end and start to consume it, which, by the way, if you ever get a chance to see it live, is quite startling as they start eating this live monkey before he's actually dead. Uh, But they start eating him, and um, individuals who've just been hanging around on the ground doing nothing, this mostly takes place in the trees, and when they've just been doing nothing, and then if they can get in close, they get to eat too. So it doesn't matter whether you uh, collaborate or not. And so we actually uh, modeled this in an experiment. And uh, we found, I'm going to skip some details here, but basically uh, they pull together and all the food comes to one of them. And the question is, do they share or not? But there's another condition where he doesn't do anything. The one on the left just pulls in the bananas by himself and does he share? And with the chimps, it didn't matter. Did the other guy help produce them or not? Doesn't matter. We have um, five-year-old children, and with the five-year-old children, um, 
If you collaborated, you get to share <laughs> roughly equally. If you didn't collaborate, say, you know, you just come over later after I did all the work, and you say, oh, I don't you know, I might give you something, but I've got four, maybe I'll give you one. Right? Because I did all the work and you didn't do anything. So even five-year-old children already don't think that somebody who didn't contribute, who didn't work, deserves an equal share. They might deserve something, but they don't deserve an equal share. Okay, so now let's look at some cognitive uh, outcomes of this kind of collaborative activity. I'm going to go over a little bit about joint goals and commitments, individual roles in the collaborative activity. So you and I have a common goal, we have a shared goal, but we have different roles that we play. Um, the role of communication in coordinating these collaborative activities, and a little bit about social norms uh, at the end. I'm going to again invoke the notion of shared or we intentionality. Uh, this is a, um, a, a concept that I borrowed from uh, some philosophers of action who do... Um, um, Margaret Gilbert has a famous paper where she talks about on taking a walk together. So if you and I agree, okay, let's go take a walk uh, down to the restaurant or something, and we start walking down there, and I just all of a sudden turn off and walk in another direction. Okay? It's not just that you're surprised, okay? but you're a little bit upset with me. What, what's he doing? You know? And you'll end up gossiping to your friends about, I think he's losing it here. What's going on? Okay? Because we decided together that we would do it together. And I can't just break that off. We can't be standing here talking, having a nice conversation, and I just walk off. Okay? But I can do that if I say, oh, sorry, I just remembered something important. And you say, okay, now I can go. Right? Because we had a commitment to do it together, and if we agree that I can break it, then I can break it. I can't break it unilaterally. I have to, you have to, in some sense, acknowledge that it's okay. So the we has a normative reality. If I break it, you can be angry at me. And not only that, this is like the second personal protest, like, like the moral protest of the girl there. I'm going to agree with you. You're going to say, what are you doing? You're walking off like that. I say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay? The, if I didn't agree with you, you'd say, what are you doing walking off? And I'd say, mm -hmm. Okay? I felt like walking off. So what? Okay? Okay, our relationship is in jeopardy now. <laughs> okay? If I want our relationship to stay intact, I have to say, oh, you're right, you're right, I shouldn't have done that, we agreed to take a walk together. Okay? So not only do you get on my case, but we get on my case. We get on my case. I agree with you, I shouldn't have done that. All right? This is the we intentionality. We decide to do something together, we monitor each of us doing our role, and um, uh, that's what keeps the we intact. All right, so here's a little study that we did where um, we started doing something together with a kid. So let's say we are going to play this game together. And then, perverse psychologists that we are, the adult is going to just stop doing it in the middle for no reason. This is an 18-month-old child. This is like one of those ethno-methodology experiments, but with children. Uh, they're playing a fun game together, 18 months old, mostly pre-verbal, maybe a couple of words here or there. And then he starts to put, he's teasing, he's got the mouth open, right, okay? And now he does it down here where he knows he should. And now Felix is going to go into um, uh, 15 seconds inactivity. He starts to put it down, but no, he wants him to come play his role, come. But his hand is stuck for the moment, okay? He's got his hand out. 
And he says, no, come, okay, come over. And now the 15 seconds is up, and he comes over. So he's programmed for 15 seconds no matter what the child does, but the child brings him over, okay? Now here's a chimp in a different, this is a different, um, uh, a different setting. Uh, by the way, we, I'm not showing you the chimps in that first one, because in that first one, what the chimps did when we tried to teach them that game was... Um, they would put it down and run around and catch it themselves. <laughs> so, they, so, so they would play another little game. So, so this is one where they couldn't play both roles themselves. And um, uh, ignore that front panel. That's just a way of keeping the chimp out of there. The chimp has to lift the door that he's lifting here. And then she is going to reach through and get the food and share it. So he's lifting the door. She's reaching through and getting the food. But she's going to go into her 15 second also. And you'll see what the chimp does here. Okay, this is Annette, a human-raised chimp. Uh, her mother didn't take care of her, so she was raised by humans. She's frustrated that, that, that the human's not doing her part. But now she just comes and tries to elbow her out of the way and says, okay, maybe I can reach by myself. Right? But she's not trying to get the other one to play her role and say, come on, do your thing. She's just trying to... Now, she's ready again. Signaling that she's ready. And it works. So... We get the same outcome, they, being successful here, but it's not because the chimp was doing anything to in, in, encourage the other one, to re-engage the other one in the collaborative activity. It just, she did nothing during the 15 seconds to encourage um, the other one. People have said to me, but wait a minute, the chimp is, 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 is collaborating, interacting with a human. Uh, what if it was with another chimp? Well, I can tell you what happens. We had did it with two chimps, and they flailed around a little bit, and every once in a while they'd be successful, but of course, the one on the bottom would just eat it all. <laughs> so the one, on, the one on the top was a sucker. <laughs> um, and you only have to be a sucker once or twice, and then you stop. So the, our problem of dividing the spoils comes back again. Uh, so uh, the main point is that even when they're successful, they're not doing it in the same way that the kids are doing it. The kids are doing it by uh, understanding that the other one has a role to play, um, and uh, he's not playing his role, and so he has to encourage him to come back in and play his role. Um, part of what our joint goal is, is a joint commitment to see it through to the end. So if you and I decide that we're going you know, to work on something together, and then I just sort of quit in the middle, that's no good. My commitment is that under normal circumstances, we're going to work through until both of us get our reward. So what we did here with the kids is, down at the bottom, there's a, a, a stick... And there's actually two cups, and there's food in each bowls, and there's food in each bowl, or a toy in each bowl, a toy in each bowl. And they have to lift it up together. You'll see how that works. But what we did was, there are these holes where they can access the toys, and we closed off one of them on the side of this girl closest to us over here. Uh, uh, sorry, the one over here is open, and the one on the far side over there is closed. So basically, one of them's going to get her reward first. So does she stay committed through till the other one gets her reward? This is what uh, the philosopher Tumala calls the commitment condition, that we stick with it until everybody gets their just desserts. Um, and um, if I get mine first, I can't just quit. And so here you'll see them. They're pulling up. All right, and they're having trouble here, but anyway. And they pulls it up, and now she can get her reward, the girl on this side, and she gets it, but now she sort of sees the girl, other girl's problem. Come, she's coming to check it out. 
And she, she has not cashed in her reward yet. She needs to cash in her reward in the machine. She hasn't done that yet. And before she cashes in, she helps the other girl get hers. And now they both cash in in their little cling machines. Um, uh, now, anyone who's ever worked with chimps can tell you the answer to the question about when the chimps did it. Uh, they are pulling together. One of them gets their reward first. Great. Game over. Okay? <laughs> All right. I got out of it what I wanted to get out of it, and that's the end of it. Okay? We're not committed to make sure that you get your part. So again... Um, in the case uh, where they might pull it all the way to the top, the behavior might look the same, but when we give another experimental condition here and show to try to see how they're motivated, the kids are motivated that we do it through to the end, that we get it, and the chimps uh, are just motivated for me to get out of it, what I get out of it. I should say we also have a control condition where they come in and the stick is already where the first girl can reach hers, so she just comes in and reaches it, and so there's no collaboration. And in that case, she still helps the other girls some, but not nearly as much as if they collaborated. So if they've been collaborating, she helps even more than she would help in a normal situation. So collaboration fosters not only equal sharing, but collaboration also fosters helping. Um, and here's a, a video that demonstrates a number of different points simultaneously. So I'm just going to show it to you. It's, it's a little bit long. It's a minute and a half or something. minute or minute and a half. But it shows a lot of things. This was originally a study of uh, children's helping. And um, this is an 18-month-old child. And um, here comes Felix to put away the magazines. So the child sees that the magazines go there. Really just kind of out of it there, following around to see what's happening. Now here comes Felix again. And now the child helps. Okay? But not only that, watch, he says, put them here. They go there. Okay? Now you're gonna, he'll look back and do it again. They go there. So he's telling him how to play his role. Okay? There they go. Now notice that was in reaction. The kid opened the door once Felix had a problem. But now here come some more magazines. The kid doesn't have to wait for him to have a problem. He knows the whole deal now. Alright? We open it ahead of time. And... You put them there. <laughs> okay? All right? So the kid has the whole... Okay, so I would say round one, the kid has no idea what's going on. No, just follow, you know. Then Felix has a problem. The kid follows in. Okay, he sees what's happening. He wants the magazines in the cabinet. He follows in. But then on the next round... Um, he anticipates what's happening. He knows both sides of the collaboration. He knows I open the door. He should put him in. And indeed, if you put the kid in the other position, they can reverse roles. So if Felix sits there acting like he's going to open the cabinet, the kid can go over and get the magazines to put them away. So I have talked in the past about the child having a bird's eye view of the cooperation. It's not just me and my role here looking out and seeing you as this alien in your other role. I can imagine both roles, like from a bird's eye view, and then we can switch roles like this. So this is really key um, point, is that the roles are in some sense independent of individuals. The individual who gets the magazines has to do this. And the one who opens the door has to do this. So it doesn't matter what your personality is or whatever. This is driven by the task, the role. And I think this is the origin of normative standards. The origin of normative standards is roles in collaborative activities that have specifications that are not personalized 
to individuals. If we want to get this done together, somebody's going to have to do that, somebody's going to have to do that. Right? And, we, and when we both know those together, then if you're not doing your part, I can say, hey, we both know what you're supposed to be doing. Why aren't you doing it? And you say, oh, sorry, you're right. All right. And that's the collaboration. That's the normative connection. That we've committed to do it the right way, and we both know what the right way is, and if you don't do it, I'm going to call you on it, and you're going to agree with me and, get, and feel guilty. I'll be angry at you, and you'll feel guilty, and that means we're collaborating. If you get angry at me and I blow you off, then... It's all over. Collaboration is over. Okay. And knowing this other role, we demonstrated this in a a study where we actually had... um, This is going to be the outcome. We want to know how well does the chimp play role B. And this is kids and chimps. How well do they play role B in a collaboration? And there are two conditions. Uh, One of them is just what we call the baseline. How well does he play role B with no previous experience? Just coming in cold, naive. How well does he play role B? Full stop. In the other condition, uh, what did I call that there? Uh, The participant condition, he played role A first. Okay? So now the question is, do you get value added having played role A and watched your partner playing role B? And the answer, as you might suspect, uh, (laughs) because my answer is going to be similar again, is that the chimps, no value added. Having played the opposite role, you you haven't learned anything about your partner's role. With the kids, if you played role B first, uh, sorry, if you played role A first, now you're much better at role B. So we think that the chimps, again, are kind of participating individualistically in this group activity, if you will, and the kids are really collaborating with a common goal, with different roles, and they can see both of them. So this is the kind of structure that I think we can schematize as being underlying all of this stuff that I've just been talking about, is that you've got two individuals, they have a joint goal, I haven't stressed it, I'm going to say a little bit more about it in a minute, we have joint attention, we're looking to, we're, we are attending together to something that's relevant to our joint goal. But at the same time, you have your role and I have my role. You have your individual role, I have my individual role. You have your individual perspective and I have my individual perspective. And this is the point I am going to emphasize in just one minute. We think it's critical, the notion of perspective, or at least we're going to emphasize. Different perspectives is not just seeing different things. If you look out one window and see something and I look out another window and see something, we don't have different perspectives, we just see completely different things. But if I hold this up, we are looking at this together, we're jointly attending to this, but I see it from this perspective, and you see it from that perspective. So the notion of perspective presupposes some shared something of which we have different perspectives. Okay? By the way, looking out the different windows, you could say we have different perspectives on the world. Okay? But that now posits this common thing of the world on which we have different perspectives. So this is going to be a key cognitive outcome I call this, I wish I had a sexier name for it, but I call it the dual level structure, meaning jointness, joint goal, joint attention, and individuality simultaneously at the same time. Individual roles, individual perspectives. And humans have this schema of jointness and individuality all in one schema simultaneously available. So while we're collaborating, we have a joint goal. I know your role, you know my role. I take your perspective and my perspective. I can even imagine you taking my perspective. I can take your perspective taking my perspective. So uh, jointness and individuality. Okay? Uh, I'm going to skip that for purposes of time. Uh, Now... um, 
Let's talk just a little bit about communication. I have a hypothesis that I've had out there for a while that the natural home of human cooperative communication is collaborative activity. So humans, of course, have language, and other apes don't have language. But I've, I'm fond of saying that um, that's like, you know, when you focus on language, it's like saying that only humans build skyscrapers, and chimps don't build skyscrapers. Well, it turns out chimps don't even build shelters. So uh, let's focus down a little from language and just focus on cooperative communication, like the pointing gesture. Okay? So I go like this for you. You say... So what, 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 you know, what? Okay, there's nothing. But if somebody's coming in the room and they're looking for a chair and I'm pointing to an empty seat, then they know that that's what I'm pointing to. And I'm pointing out that for them. Great apes do not point for one another. Iconic gestures, where you gesture for somebody. I was at the, actually at the, at the airport on the way here and um, there's about a five-year-old little girl and she goes through and she sets off the metal detector and the guy with the wand is there, and he does the little wand over her. And then he goes like this. And she looks up at him and goes. <laughs> so, um, so, the, so, so these iconic gestures, she, they don't have in their common ground, they don't have a common understanding of airport security procedures. He, he intends this to be representing her body. And she wants her to see her body is moving around the way his finger is moving around. And she doesn't have any proof that's what it's grounded in. So just like when I point like this, you have no idea what, it, what I intend. But with the background, like you're searching for a chair, and we both know you're searching for a chair, it's meaningful. Uh, and the, I, I kind of gesture the same thing. So I think this collaborative activity where we're doing something together and we know what we're doing, that is the natural home of cooperative communication where, and I'm going to tell you why I'm saying cooperative um, uh, when we, uh, when we um, um, spell this out just a little bit. A very, so let's talk not just about the production, but let's talk about the comprehension of something like a pointing gesture. And you're just going to, uh, you're going to wonder why anybody would waste their time doing a study like this, but I'll show you in just one second. Um, here's a 12-month-old baby, so basically pre-linguistic. And uh, the experimenter is going to get his attention on this toy. And she'll center him before she, she'll hide it, and then she'll center him before she points. All right, he doesn't know where it is. All right, now she'll call his name and get him to look straight ahead at her. And now she points, and he finds it. And you say, well, of course, she told him where it was. <laughs> okay, but as I start out my book on communication, take a trip to the zoo, pick out any animal you wish, and say, food over there, <laughs> like this, it doesn't register. And so with chimps, it doesn't register. So here you go. Here's Again, this is a, has a TV background here, but this is the same basic experiment. So that voiceover is one part of the explanation. When I point to this chair over here, the person looking for a chair just naturally assumes that I'm trying to be helpful. And, uh, and uh, why does he think that's relevant for me? Why does he think that's useful for me? That cooperative assumption, chimps don't make it. They think, what's he trying to pull? <laughs> right, what's he up to? Right, so they don't have that cooperative assumption. And so basically, I think again, starting in the collaborative uh, context is, uh, some, is what gets us uh, to that. Now, the notion of perspective 
fits into this that much of human communication is about you and I sharing something in what a lot of the linguists call common ground. So we have a shared topic that we're talking about, and then I tell you something new. Here's a pre-linguistic analog of that. This child is 14 months old. And basically, um, um, what we do is somebody's going to come in here, and this person's going to look at the side of the toy drum and go, oh, all right? Now, what we manipulate is, has that child shared attention to that drum with that person previously? If they have, it would be analogous to this. You and I passing this back and forth and saying, oh, nice pen, right? Oh, this is great, nice. And then I go, oh, you're not going to assume I'm looking at the pen, right? The pen is old news. It's something new about the pen, some new feature or some new something. And so you'll see what the child does. This child has indeed shared the drum with her before. Okay, so, so, all right. All right. you use your best videos, okay, but, uh, but, but this was a group level phenomenon that uh, if you didn't share anything with them first, then they think you're talking about the drum as a whole. They say, oh yeah, it is a cool drum, isn't it? But if you shared it with them, they say, well, we, okay, the drum is old news. We've already been excited about it. What, it must be something else, all right? So this is the notion of perspective. Shared, but a new take on it. Okay, so um, one of the things that most clearly differentiates human cognition from the cognition of other animal species, I would claim and have claimed in print, is philosophers have called it different things, aspectual shape, uh, putting things under different descriptions, uh, but I can call this same animal a dog or a pet or a pest or an animal, and it's the same exact individual under different descriptions. I can, I can say that this one animal is chasing the other, the other one is fleeing the first one, one guy is hunting, one guy is running. We see the same perceptual scene and we put it under different descriptions and we just take that as natural. It's not natural for very young children, one-year-olds don't do it, um, and it's not natural for other animal species. And I would say where that comes from is from this kind of thing where we have something shared and we have something new. Okay, um, enforcing social norms. I have a sort of an evolutionary story that I tell in my recent stuff. Everything I've talked about before here previously, almost all of it, is this collaborative thing. So step one is about collaboration and about us working together toward a common goal. But then something happens later in human culture, which is basically a scaling up of this small-scale cooperation into culture. Culture can be thought of, in a very general terms, as one big cooperative activity. We're in this together, and indeed, one of the characteristics of uh, early, of modern humans, but tens of thousands of years ago, when they first started having distinct cultures, is our culture is our culture, we do things this way, and those barbarians across the river do things a different way. So it's in our culture um, is already implicit an in-group, out-group kind of um, way of thinking about things. So I'm just going to, I wanted to focus on cooperation as the, this sort of collaboration, cooperation is the first step, but we can think of culture as a scaled up version of that. And one of the ways that things, um, one of the most interesting phenomena in culture from the point of view of this making what's special in humans is the phenomenon of social norms. We know what's expected of us. Okay? Little kids come into a new kindergarten. The first thing they say, 
Where do we hang our coats? Where do the shoes go? What are the rules? How, how, they know that there's stuff they're supposed to do, and there's a way they're supposed to do it. Where does that come from? Okay, they have some notion that I don't know the right way to characterize it, but some notion of um, something larger than themselves. It's almost like one of my culture, one of my collaborative roles I was talking about. These normative standards. When you're a new kid coming to school, here's what you should do. Okay, it's almost like that. Cultural roles have these normative standards with them. We don't really know how very young children understand this. Children are hearing social norms coming from their parents. Their parents are saying, you know, don't throw your food, don't do this, don't do that. But our hypothesis is that one-year-olds and two-year-olds are hearing that as admonitions coming from an individual. It's mama doesn't want me to do this. That's not a social norm. A social norm is that somehow I am expected to do this or to not do that. It's what's generally expected in some way. And we think what really shows that is when children themselves start enforcing the social norms. So they're not just following them, but they're enforcing them. And this is a three-year-old, um, and you'll see what we're going to... This, this has a puppet. We always do it with puppets because they're a little bit... Um, reluctant to uh, criticize an adult, <laughs> and, uh, and we, we couldn't program another child to behave uh, the right way, so we have a puppet that behaves the right way, uh, and the puppet is going to play the game the wrong way. You don't really need to know what the rules of the game are, but the point is the puppet's going to not play it right, and you'll see what the little boy says. Oh, And he's going to sit there. <laughs> he's not following the rules. <laughs> She's instructed not to look, by the way. <laughs> okay. Now I will say these are German children. <laughs> My German colleagues are the ones who started this joke. I didn't. I didn't start it, but uh, so they are fairly pro-social and rule-following, uh, and, and and we're now. We're, we're now doing it in larger cultural, uh, other cultural settings. But um, this is really important because it's obvious why people follow social norms. You don't want to get punished. You don't want to have people think bad of you. You fit in with the group. That's why we follow social norms. But why do you enforce them? That's not so evident. Why would a three-year-old enforce the norms? They have a normative sense that this applies to everybody. They just see this is how... You play it, now somebody does it the wrong way, no, they don't like it. So um, they're enforcing the norm. We think this shows they really understand it as something beyond a personal preference. They use normative language like cheating or shouldn't do it or should do it. Um, this is how it goes, they sometimes say. Right, wrong, that kid says it's false, it's wrong. So this enforcing of social norms, I think, shows a level of some kind of a social rationality of if things are going to work, you have to do them the right way. That's, that's really the rationale of these social norms and once they start enforcing them. So these are three-year-olds. They're a little bit older than the older children I was showing you, but they're not so old. 
Um, now, one of the interesting things that lots of um, people looking at human cooperation have noted, um, I'm thinking of Christina Biccieri in particular, is that one of the things about social norms um, is that actually we don't actually enforce them that often because people are worried about what others are thinking about them, and so that, that doesn't come to punishment. I just conform. So here's a little study we did with um, chimps and kids. But we, we didn't do the norm enforcement with chimps because chimps, don't, if they don't have norms, they're not going to enforce them. But uh, here we are. So this is now a child who has a chance either to do something nice or to cheat in two different conditions. And this is one where um, she's told that another child, that's another child's paper, and this child is actually really needs badly a large star to finish her sticker thing. And she doesn't have one. But the other girl who's coming in later has multiple big stars, many more than she needs. Okay? And we want to know, will she take that other girl's star? And what we manipulate is, either there's another peer over there watching or not. Okay? And you can see what this little girl does. She would like to take the big star. (laughs) But she doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Checking it out. So, okay. So, um, so as you might guess, uh, kids, when they're being watched, as you might guess, and as probably you would do yourself, when they're being watched, they help more and they steal less. Okay? <laughs> we did it with chimps. Chimps don't care. Okay? They don't care if somebody's watching or not. So, again, they don't control free riders. They don't um, uh, care about their reputation. So, actually, all of this is put together. I'm not going to elaborate on this because I don't want to extend over my time. But I have a pair of books coming out, uh, one of them out this year, and its companion volume coming out soon, uh, both having this sort of two-step sequence of cooperation as an early step and uh, culture as the second step of a scaled-up human cooperation. And I tell this kind of two-step story both in the domain of cognition and thinking on the one hand and in the domain of cooperation and morality uh, on the other hand. Um, um, We have just started doing some cross-cultural things. Rita Studi is one of the leaders in doing this kind of thing. When you get really basic social cognitive skills that are necessary for being a cultural being in the first place, being able to imitate, being able to read the intentions of others, following gaze, pointing for them, collaborating in simple ways, joint attention. The kids being tested here are all between one and two years of age. And in all the cultures, we pretty much see very similar things. It's only three cultural groups, but the Peruvian and Indian groups are non-literate, small scale, um, and their kids do the same things that these Canadian kids do uh, at one year. But again, these are not things that you learn from your culture. These are things that enable you to plug into your culture and start learning imitation and collaboration and joint attention. We've recently been doing um, uh, some collaborative studies some studies where we're looking across cultures at some things that are more about cooperation and sharing and things like that. And there we're starting to see some really interesting cross-cultural differences. And I just want to mention one because I'm here with all these people who do this great cross-cultural work and we've just started trying our hand at it just a little bit. What this was about was um, the kids were fishing for these uh, little beads and they would put them in a, um, they would put them together and then the experimenter came in. This is very important. The experimenter comes in with a bowl 
so they fish 12 beads in total, but one of them fishes more than the other one. And she comes in with a bowl and all the resources are together. And the question is, how, they, how do they divide them up? And if you look at the far right there, the German kids, the majority of them divided up exactly how you, your, your productivity. If, if you produce nine and the other guy only had three, then you take nine and he gets three because you fished out nine and he only fished out three. If you're wondering how that happens, we rigged it so that one of their uh, magnets was better than the other one. So, so the, the one that gets nine gets nine, the other that gets three gets three. Uh, but we have two other cultures, and these are both small-scale African cultures that have different social norms about sharing. Um, and um, actually, in the middle one, in the High Kong, they're a very uh, egalitarian society. They share most things equally, uh, and no matter who does what, they share things equally. And you see most of them sharing equally or possibly giving a little more to the one who fished more. But still, it's, it's around equal or maybe a little bit above equal. And then in the Samburu, this is an interesting case. I'm just not sure. This is a, these are pastoralists in northern Kenya. And... Um, Basically, it's a gerontocratic society, so the adults make all decisions about how things are shared. And the kids have very little experience sharing things. They just get whatever is doled out. So they're all over the place. Some of them are sharing, some of them are not sharing, and they end up... um, uh, um, uh, you can see where the bubbles are all over the place. So, so I wanted to emphasize a, a contrast here with these two studies. Is One is that some of the things that we've called cultural learning and cultural cognition are things that I think are species characteristics that all individuals in all cultures are going to have. These basic skills of imitation and communicating by pointing and collaborating and joint attention. Those are things that open the door to culture for you. But then there are things like this about how do we share things and that's not something that's similar, that's the same. Those are things you learn about how your culture does it, how your culture divides things, what's expected. So um, again, we have to be uh, able to think in complex ways, that is, we have to say it's both. The answer is that it's both your biological inheritance, but also your cultural inheritance, what you, uh, what you learn from your culture about how to do things. Okay, so um, in very short bullet points, what I've tried to argue to you is that human children are biologically adapted for cooperation in ways that other great apes are not. All the ways I showed you about sharing the spoils and excluding free riders and social norms and all of that are ways that they're adapted for um, um, culture and uh, cooperation and culture in ways the great apes are not. And that these adaptations are fundamentally to uniquely human processes of cognition, communication, culture, and morality with different cultures elaborating on these in different ways. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike, for a fascinating lecture. We are going to continue now, uh, and I'm going to invite uh, Professor Stucci to respond to Mike. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, dazzling presentation, really, a tour de force. Um, And I guess it's really impressive to see the way in which, you know, you and your colleagues in your lab kind of set out to find answers to what are really fundamental questions about the nature of human beings. And I guess the words that come to mind, at least to my mind, is elegantly and ingeniously. 
And of course, all these studies, all this empirical effort is theoretically motivated. The studies upon studies that you've conducted comparing children with chimpanzees are gathering evidence in support, as I understand it, of a particular account of the evolutionary origins of human cooperative abilities, an account that in other papers, in other places, you have explained privileges so-called mutualism, uh, the idea that we help one another for our mutual benefit over the alternative hypothesis that is altruism that is driving human cooperation, the idea that we help uh, others at a cost to ourselves. Now, these two accounts, mutualism versus altruism, make different predictions about the kind of evolved predispositions that enable us humans to cooperate. And obviously, all this empirical work demonstrates that human children manifest the particular skills and motivation that fit with the mutualistic account. However, the theoretical starting point is more specific than just mutualism. In the two-steps model of the evolution of human cooperation that you've proposed, that model starts with a foraging challenge, as you've discussed uh, in the lecture tonight, that is how to move from a situation in which our ancestors foraged alone for small rewards, which didn't require any cooperation, didn't require coordinated action, didn't require to worry about free riders, to a situation in which individuals got together and foraged in a coordinated fashion for larger rewards, which had to then be divided in a particular way that motivated the cooperation to go on, and that also was a way of dividing free from free riders. Okay, so as we've seen tonight, many of the studies with infants and chimpanzees have been modeled on that particular challenge, on the challenges and opportunities created by this stag hunt scenario, where you, know, you, you give up hunting by yourself for a small reward and you join forces to hunt for a bigger, the stag reward. And so the studies are testing for the cognitive and motivational dispositions that are needed to be in place for this stag hunt to be sustained through time. The, the kind of cognitive, motivational, and emotional dispositions that, in fact, all your studies have found to be present in children but not in chimpanzees. So one question I have, the first question I would like to raise, is about the kind of theoretical justification for this focus on foraging as the driving force, uh, the selective pressure on our species. And in particular, I'm curious about your views on how this hypothesis differs from the so-called cooperative breeding hypothesis, which focuses on a very different set of challenges that might have faced our ancestors, not so much the challenge of hunting stags together, but the challenge, the challenge of mothering infants together. Of course, I'm referring here to the, the work of Sarah Hardy, and I'm wondering what relation you see between uh, your account and her account, whether they are incompatible, 
and if they are not incompatible, how they might dovetail. The second set of comments I have um, relate to the second step on your evolutionary model um, that has culture as its core. I was just it just occurred to me when you were talking that we are taking our roles. You're doing the psychology role, <laughs> and I'm doing the anthropology role. Um, so culture in your account, as I understand it, becomes in part the solution to the problem of recognizing those that belong to my group in the context of a cooperative activity. So those that I can assume will share my skills, my values, that make coordination easier, make coordination possible, those that I can trust to be good partners in cooperative endeavors that I can assume will take on kind of agreed cultural roles, following predictable rules, sharing the spoils according to custom, and so on and so forth. So culture is central to the account, and indeed much of your work uh, has been about the Cultural Origins of Human Cognition, the title of one of your, of your uh, books. Now, of course, when humans get themselves involved in the business of producing and transmitting culture, they become radically different uh, creatures, cognitively, emotionally, and motivationally. And indeed, all the comparative studies we have seen tonight of children and chimpanzees document precisely and brilliantly the fact that once we have culture, the game changes entirely. Um, if this is the case, however, we have to face a really serious methodological challenge, which has important theoretical implications. I should note here, I'm taking the role of the anthropologist, that this is a point that has been made by anthropologists again and again and again, so I don't claim any kind of originality here in making and raising this point. And the point is that it is impossible to study human children. So the word human children was repeated many times tonight. Um, I would provocatively say that we cannot study human children and their evolved disposition simply because they are no human children. There can only ever be children who, even when they're toddlers, as cute as they are, um, they are developing in particular historically constituted contexts. Their evolved predispositions can only be there expressed in the context of a particular cultural environment that exists, as you said, before them in which they contribute to shape as they join in the historical flow. So when we compare chimpanzees with children, we must be comparing chimpanzees with historically and culturally situated children, not with human children in the abstract. And of course, you know, the standard kind of response to this objection is to move towards cross-cultural uh, research, which as you've, see, as you've shown here, aims to show that some aspect of children's performance is indeed universal since it does not vary across different cultural contexts. However, cross-cultural research is really, really tricky since its validity is predicated on the assumption that is sometimes problematic that the experimental situations with the apparatuses and rewards and social dynamics and so on and so forth, the very format of an experiment, 
are understood and experienced in the same way across cultural context. The reality is that this is hardly ever the case, which means that we really shouldn't kid ourselves that we can ever push to one side the fact that the children we are studying are Germans, <laughs> Peruvians, Indians, Chinese, Malagasy, or whatever. So what might the solution be to this problem? So my modest uh, recommendation is that we take seriously the role of culture wherever we are. And if we're doing experiments in Leipzig or London or Boston, our job must be to make German, English, American, middle-class culture far less transparent than it is commonly made out to be. It's not just Indian people, Peruvian people who have culture. We have culture too. So what really distinguishes the children from the chimpanzees in your studies is the fact that children are embedded in their culture, the kind of feeding, sleeping, interactive regimes, bodily practices that must surely play a role in the scaffolding of their very early cooperative behaviors. So what we need, perhaps, to resist the temptation of talking about non-existent human children is a detailed and rich ethnography of the exotic cultural practices that prevail in Leipzig. <laughs> Do you want to respond now? Because we have Alex. Please. Do you want to go ahead? Do you want perhaps make your yeah? I don't want him. I don't want you to. Yeah. When people start losing, when people start losing energy, it should be me babbling on, and we should we should get this. Well, Alex will make his contribution, and then Mike will come back. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for a, a tour de force in, in human uniqueness. Uh, I was reminded of an anecdote. I'm sure this is probably wrong, but for me it captures some of the essence of what you were trying to communicate, an anecdote from the 1960s when they were trying to teach chimpanzees sign language. And uh, one of the signs they learn apparently is tickle me, and this is a sort of sentence which chimpanzees learn quickly because they like to be tickled. And uh, some of the uh, experimenters got bored tickling the chimpanzees, so they put two chimpanzees in the room together. And what happened? Well, the first chimpanzee said, tickle me, and the second chimpanzee said, no, tickle me. <laughs> and uh, they were unresolved, of course. And, um, what's more remarkable than it being unresolved is that you laughed at it. You laughed at it because you saw it from both sides, yeah? It's, it's a kind of tragedy or an irony that they were trapped in their own perspectives. But we see it, and narratives and so on make us see things from both sides, and we get tickled by that sort of play of perspectives. And I think this is really at the heart of the contribution I see here, which I think is wonderfully important. I'll get on to that. But I want to just draw a connection to the work of George Herbert Mead, who I know you've referred to in some of your work. And this, this, so we're talking about this sort of architecture of intersubjectivity or, or some way of perspective coordinating at a very abstract level. Um, 
And uh, George Herbert Mead and John Dewey, they had an idea that uh, children in games, games like a small institution, they would move roles within the game and weave together the perspectives. So they're able, they're swapping roles, doing role exchange before they're doing psychological integration of perspectives. And they went even further at one point and set up a school with the idea that... uh, Every child would be the cleaner, the cook, the student, the teacher, and move roles within the school, thereby internalizing the school and becoming full citizens of the world. And so I, I, my question, which comes out of this, my first question to you is, uh, do you see ways here where we can build society and social institutions to make us more rich in that integration of perspectives? It's a sort of practical but somewhat societal point. My second question relates to communication in in some of the videos where I noticed that the children are talking a lot uh, and the apes don't talk. Uh, And that's an important difference, as as you say. But obviously there's differences before language as well. But, you know, what is happening here is not mind reading simply they're not the child isn't just having to read the mind of the other child that they got more uh, jelly babies they're just listening the other child goes look i got less jelly babies and so there's a very uh, sort of interactional process there through which perspective taking occurs and so my first, my little question there would be what would happen if the children weren't allowed to talk in those experiments would they actually resolve some of those? We, we call this the sock-in-the-mouth experiment. <laughs> and, we, and, we, and we decided it was ethically questionable. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, but it's interesting. Um, but so there's two possible roles for language we could pick our communication here. One would be that it does the, communicate, it does the coordinating. But I suspect there might be a more radical role for communication as well. Because when a child says, I don't have any jelly babies, what does that I mean? Well, so I means the person speaking. But of course, nobody hears it as the I of the person speaking. If I say I am up here, you know that you are not up here. You don't hear I as I when you use the word I. When you use the word I, I see you. And when I use the word I, you hear you. We're going to get very confused here. Uh, But the point is that the words I and you have the same meaning, but from different points of view, in the same activity. So what is happening, arguably, when they're doing this verbalization, when they say, I haven't got any jelly babies, and the other person hears the I, and they actually go, well, I can sympathize with that. That's like, I haven't got it. If I hadn't got any jelly babies, then I would be upset. So language, possibly there, bridging perspectives. Uh, and that might, well, I'd, I'd like to hear uh, any, any thoughts on that. But... Uh, I should finish. And my last point, which I want to make, which isn't a question, is more a comment. And this is what, why I think this is really important. And the message we've heard today is, is really valuable. Um, since Copernicus and Darwin and Freud, we've been decentered. You know, we're sort of, so we are not the center of the universe. We're on the periphery. Uh, we're related to the apes. And we were guided by the unconscious. And a lot of psychology sort of decenters our egocentrism and says we're not that special. But that has led to a psychology, arguably, where we studied rats and animals and so on. And, and we 
We try to understand ourselves through those animals. But if we really reduce our psychology to that level, we're going to miss out on human uniqueness. And sometimes we do need to be reminded about why we're special and a bit different. Special, I use special, that's a wrong word. We're different. Whether you want to value it differently or not, is uh, how you want to value it is your choice. But we do things differently. We have societies, we have lectures, we have even this conversation about why we're different. These are differences, and we need to explain them so that, and this is what I think uh, Michael's work does, is it... It shows us that we are not just individuals, that we're social beings, intersubjective beings, that uh, collaboration is in our very DNA, for want of a better word. And that, if we really took that insight to heart and built our institutions around that, I wonder if we'd end up somewhere different. So, but where we are now is celebrating 50 years of Department of Social Psychology and... It's very fitting that you put social interaction at the heart of what makes us human, and I would like to say a little bit of social psychology is in there as well in what makes us human. So thank you very much. Um, Well, I'm not sure if I'm capable of uh, integrating these different concerns, but um, I'll sort of do a little grouping here and, um, and address them um, uh, maybe in three or four pieces here. So um, uh, thank you, Rita, for your uh, comments. And the first um, issue you brought up was this, uh, the focus on foraging. And I will say that Sarah Hurdy said to me, oh, my God, we're back to man the hunter. Okay? And I, I take that to be, you're, you're uh, too nice to say that, but I take it that that's, uh, that that's, uh, that's, that's part of it. Genuine question. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I will say that I try to say that we're not just talking about hunting here. We're also talking about gathering activities that um, might take multiple people. So a lot of the digging for tubers, for example, uh, uh, is that way uh, gathering honey, which is quite important for some cultures, uh, takes multiple people. Uh, so there, there, there are um, things like that. And indeed, this is where you're bringing up the cooperative breeding. This is where I think they sort of come together to some degree, that the, the, the females, the, the, the pictures I saw, and I'm very far from an expert on this, of, for example, digging for tubers, you have three or four women sitting around, and two or three of them are digging, and the other one's watching the kids, so that the, so that the two of them can, uh, the other two can dig. So this is not cooperative breeding back at the camp, leaving them with grandma. This is a group of uh, females going together to um, uh, to do this foraging, and they divide up the roles. Where one of the roles is keep the kids out of the way, so the other of us can do our job. So uh, I actually think they fit together quite well, uh, and the reason I would insist on uh, foraging being part of the picture, and I've had this discussion with both Sarah Hurdy and Chris, Kristen Hawks, Kristen Hawks, um, is that a lot of the things uh, that I focus on have a cognitive dimension. So um, things like social conventions and language and social norms and that kind of uh, thing. And I can see how cooperative breeding can make you more 
make you nicer, <laughs> make you more cooperative, but it doesn't have this dimension of coordinating the activity and communication. It, it's not a complicated, I mean, complicated in the sense of, you know, having uh, us coordinate ourselves. I mean, I go do this while you watch the kids. It's got some complexity, but not quite like you're going to have to send him this way and I'm going to do this, or you're going to have to climb the trees to get the bees and whatever. So, um, so I, I think that, and, and not only that, but on this more um, sort of uh, moral dimension, if you will, issues of fairness, and, which I stressed a lot tonight with dividing the spoils and stuff. Um, it seems to me like dividing up the, the outcome of a collaboration, a stag hunt collaboration in the immediacy, um, just seems so natural to me to be the place where issues of fairness sort of grab you in the face. So um, I actually think they go together. Uh, and that obviously to be um, good at um, um, uh, collaborative foraging, once you especially get to the level of culture, uh, you need somebody to take care of the kids. And um, um, uh, so I think it, a, a foraging lifestyle and cooperative breeding go together quite nicely. I'm not enough of a historical uh, paleoanthropologist or historical anthropologist to know exactly there's controversy about when cooperative breeding might have arisen. Uh, and so I don't really know when, but um, I think at some point they go together. Um, um, and now you also brought up the the, uh, the issue of uh, there not being such a thing as human children, <laughs> and here uh, I think we get our disciplinary, uh, anthropological, and uh, more evolutionary uh, orientations maybe a little more um, deeply involved. Uh, whereas I would say that I agree with you totally. Uh, when we're talking about adults and when we're talking about older children. But I think all of us would probably agree um, that um, adults in different cultures are more different from one another than older than children and children more than young infants. And three-month-old infants are not that different, but 12-year-old kids are very different. So I, I think there's this gradual thing. And so I guess I would just emphasize that when I'm talking about one-year-old kids imitating and pointing and things like that, I'm sh of course they're enmeshed in different cultures and they're being exposed to different cultural practices. But these things that they're producing, these being able to engage in joint attention, being able to point out something interesting to somebody, being able to imitate somebody, um, I think of those as um, predispositions of the human species, and then they are taken in different paths by the culture. Um, so I think there is something like human children, uh, but I agree with you that if you take older children, you can't abstract out something uh, apart from their manifestation in their different cultures. But I do think you can talk about with younger children some predispositions and some potentially, potentially even with older children, some universals. Um, the cross-cultural experiments and the methodological problems with those Believe me, I just started doing this, and I see the problems. And I will tell you, one, our main solution um, is that we have peers interacting with one another. So you notice the experiment here. We, we, we set up the fishing game. We leave the room. We come back and set the rewards down. We leave the room. So, and in some of our other ones, we leave the room for the whole time. So I understand this does not solve all of the problems, but at least solves one problem, and that is the problem of having an adult well, even if it's an adult from the local culture, kids treat adult authorities very differently in different cultures. And one of the first things you notice about toddlers 
in a lot of the small-scale cultures is they're just, they just don't want to have anything to do with strangers. You can, and and if, you're a, if you're a white stranger coming up, you're never going to get anything from a two-year-old. So, and that's our two literals in the kindergartens are just, you know, oh, what do you want me to do now? Uh, so, uh, so it's clear um, that um, there, are these, there are huge cultural differences um, uh, that are um, uh, um, going to affect the way you do your experiments. But we've tried to focus on peer interaction as at least one way of, um, of helping to reduce this problem of, um, of the experimental context. Um, okay. Um, uh, thank you for your comments, also, uh, Alex. And um, now we'll, let's say that um, I take uh, basically um, uh, um, a focus on this sort of George Herbert Mead, different perspectives, and um, the role of communication, which he stressed quite a lot, and maybe even the IU type terms as being um, special there, and I absolutely think that's critical. I actually, my um, young daughter was one of those who spent about four months with IU confusion uh, and would say, you know, pick you up, uh, and, and when she wanted, when she intended, pick me up. So, um, uh, so indeed, uh, that is a special uh, skill, and there, I believe there's some work, for example, uh, correlating uh, in children with autism this sort of perspective taking abilities. This is Catherine Loveland's work, uh, perspective taking abilities and the mastery of the IU uh, distinction. So um, uh, I think that's a very good um, point that this kind of, this is, here is a cultural form uh, that structures uh, some of the thinking and perspective taking that's going to um, uh, take place. In terms of building uh, societal structures with more um, integration of um, different roles and perspectives, I, I would just say that um, um, I have been focused a lot lately on this sort of notion of interdependence and that um, uh, in, uh, one of the ways that we feel have a feeling of solidarity with others is when we engage in some collaborative activity with them and uh, we have to take the perspective of the other and maybe here actually forcing people into different perspectives like um, Dewey and Mead uh, might be a, a, something interesting but uh, I just think uh, first and foremost putting people in situations where they depend on one another and where my fate depends on how you do then I didn't stress this here, but Rita, you uh, talked about the altruism versus mutualism perspective. Um, I actually believe that the evolutionary origins of altruism is in mutualism. That is, if we depend on one another to get something done, and I need you in this joint activity, then if you're having trouble, it's in my interest to help you. So this evolutionary grounding that uh, I need to invest in your well-being if you're important to me has a kind of a circular logic to it that by helping you, I help myself, which evolutionarily you always need that grounding to individual fitness. So, um, so um, indeed, I think that the, um, um, that the um, uh, mutualism and the individuality um, are... Uh, critical here from a motivational point of view and from a cognitive point of view this translates into uh, shared goals in these different perspectives and I think putting people in these collaborative situations is the, um, the, uh, the most important thing you can do um, and, and I just I guess I would just um, thank you for your comment on the on this not that special I mean what we um, I, um, I like to say sometimes that um, uh, um, in our work with chimps especially, 
we get attacked from both directions. We get people who think that we're being too hard on the chimps and that, uh, again, methodological problems, maybe they're not expressing all they can do in the cooperative domain. And then we get people saying, well, you think they can see what, know what others see and all that. You're giving them too much credit. Uh, and I think the same with, uh, with humans is that we have to understand that we're apes, that we have this basic grounding in similarities with apes in many ways. We share all this DNA with them. We share lots of... Uh, if you if you interact with chimps very long, you see that they express their emotions in very similar ways to our basic emotions, not the more complicated ones, but the fear and anger and things like that. Uh, they're figuring, they're trying to figure out what others are doing and all of that. So there's this basic Darwinian continuity that we is important for us to recognize, but at the same time, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And uh, clearly, we're in this hall doing this, and 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 they're not. So um, I think the the um, or, we're studying them, but they're not studying us. And as one of my colleagues says, uh, so far as we know. Um, but, um, um, but I think that's, um, I guess, um, maybe it's a methodological theme or some kind of a, a theme. Is uh, I think in a lot of cases we need to keep multiple things in mind at the same time. You can't reduce one to the other. So we can't reduce it to selfishness or cooperation. We're both selfish and we're cooperative. We can't reduce it to shared joints and cooperation. And, um, cooperation. We also uh, are individuals with our own individual interests and needs. And um, and here's a case where um, uh, you know we're 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 great apes, and so we share a lot with them. But um, on the other hand, we have our own unique properties. So I think we need to always keep um, uh, both perspectives in mind. So in any case, I thank both of you very much for your uh, comments and um, yeah. Thanks, Mark. We're quite advanced in time, but because this is the LSE, we're going to take two questions from the floor. Uh, so I'm going to ask the stewards any... There is a question there and... <laughs> okay, I'll take three questions from the floor. One, two, and three. And that's one from each section. Yeah. How, one from each section. How so fair. There is one there, one there. Here, right here at the front. Um, uh, can I just ask for you to be very brief, please? And, okay. Yeah. Um, I was really interested to see the high com um, in amongst your cultural sample because I certainly, as somebody who's worked with foragers, would, would expect that egalitarian foragers would share anyway. They wouldn't have any connotation of deserving. Um, but um, I wanted to push Mike on your step two mm. of you only get the norms and institutions with group-on-group group conflict because, again, with egalitarian foragers, that kind of group-on-group group conflict doesn't really exist, but the things that matter are links between groups in terms of SARO, gift exchange networks, or universal kinship, and therefore it's not just collaboration in terms of sharing the spoils, but also perhaps in terms of sharing sexual partners and uh, this kind of collaboration. Okay. 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 I'll take all three questions now, and then Mike will address them all together. There was one there, and then one young woman there. Just uh, wait. Right. Thank you for a very interesting 
uh, uh, presentation, you, uh, in, in some of the chimpanzee examples, you talked of them being dominant. And uh, I wanted to ask whether, whether that was something, whether that's something that with any two chimpanzees, you're always going to get one being dominant. But then interestingly, with your children, uh, they, were, they seemed to be always the same age, always the same sex. If you had the different ages and different sexes, possibly, uh, with the children, might you have had elements of dominance coming to affect how they worked cooperatively? So sort of cooperatively, I'll lead, you follow. Okay, good. Thank you. Now, can we have the final question here, please? Um, it's actually quite similar. Um, I was also noticing that in all, all of the experiments, there were always two girls and two boys cooperating. Yeah. So, first question, is there a difference if you have two boys versus two girls? Is one, uh, is one kind like more cooperative than the other? And also, what would happen if it was one boy and one girl? And same for chimpanzees. Okay, um, so maybe I should uh, go in order here. Um, the, um, um, so I will say that um, you're, you're saying that, the, that these egalitarian cultures are not really operating with a sense of deservingness. I would like to ask the question to you. Um, I understand not a proportional one like the German kids were doing, but what about free riding? Totally. What about? Uh, I know that in a in these forager societies, there is a notion that everyone deserves food. That every that there, nobody's going to left to be starved for sure. Um, but if I don't know, there's some building or some something. Uh, is it not the case that the ones who are putting in more of the work are going to get to enjoy the? I think food is special in this case, but um, uh, being able to enjoy more of the somehow benefits of the thing that they built or put together or something, some notion of the, of uh, some correlation between work and outcome? No? I don't, I don't think the thinking is like that. I think there may be sense of it, there may be prestige associated with Okay. Okay. All right. So fair enough. And I guess all I would say there is that, um, Part of our way of looking at things, and you're also talking about this transition to um, culture, is that if you think of the culture as a whole, as one big sort of collaborative group, um, then you would divide things equally and do things equally. And no matter if I brought it in, we'd share it. If you brought it in, we'd share it. So um, uh, um, it, it does. It could be that in more um, egalitarian, small-scale foraging societies, that that is the that's that covers everything. And now that we've reverted back to uh, societies with hierarchical structure and competition and all of that, this dominant issue uh, this uh, has, has sort of um, come back. Um, and that, uh, I'll come back in a second to the group competition. That also relates to, to your point about dominance, which is well taken, which is, um, but I just want to stress that um, um, uh, 
dominance returns <laughs> to humans with civilization, with agriculture and sharing and, and storing up uh, stuff and protecting it and all of that and, and, and hierarchical um, stratified societies and so forth. Um, and that clearly um, is uh, different between modern Western cultures and more small-scale societies, including forager societies. So, and, and we know from Christopher Baum's work about the egalitarian leveling mechanisms of, for uh, political things in these societies um, as well. Uh, the group competition idea is a very controversial one, and nobody really knows for sure. There are some people that think there was only group competition very late in the game. Others think there wasn't any ever at all. I mean, Boyd and those guys try to cite all these statistics about warring between groups, and other people say no or say that it's only late. So I, I don't know what the answer to that is. But what I would like to see is some kind of a... a some glue that holds cultures together um, even after they start getting some kind of tribal organization where there are lots of these, where there are people that are part of my larger cultural group that I don't even know, that are over in another settlement or whatever, I'd like to have something holding them together and obviously group competition would be an easy answer as it were uh, but I'm, I would be open to other notions of solidarity I, I will say that in the social psychology uh, there is a, a tradition, it goes all the way back to Durkheim actually about mechanical solidarity and organic solidarity but also in modern social psychology two, two notions of feeling in a group, one is working together, some kind of task, they call it task something, and the other one is some kind of cultural identity or something like our group identity that you study with minimal groups paradigms where it's the most amazing thing. One of the most amazing things I've ever observed in children is when you put you know, yellow T-shirts on some kids and tell them they're in the yellow group and all of a sudden they start doing things toward one another that differently than they do with other groups. So this group identification, and okay, group competition would be an easy answer, but I'd be happy to any answer that provides group-level solidarity. And... Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, the methodological question about the dominance with the kids is a very important one, and gender with the kids, and it's something that is just traditional in developmental psychology to not get things so complicated with the mixed gender and mixed aged groups, uh, because uh, you would you would end up having dozens of groups to get all combinations of gender and um, and um, uh, and age uh, combinations, and so I just would um, say that we have, we need to go beyond that, and neither we nor other people in the field have gone beyond it. And we just tried to study um, the more straightforward cases, supposedly straightforward cases, but we definitely need to um, go beyond that. Well, uh, let me thank our speakers this evening for. Um, a very interesting, fascinating panel discussion. To thank Michael for his uh, lecture this evening and to thank you all for having come to the school uh, to share with us uh, this event. So thank you very much and do come back to our public event. <laughs>